0: Okay let's continue on the track of ontology for a little bit. and there's several uh, points I would like to make so we can weave them together. Um, so the first uh, comes up in relation to a question that someone asked: um, What is the difference between the imaginal middle way and the middle way of emptiness? So this is an important ontological inquiry, an important ontological clarification that needs to be made here. What's the difference between the Imaginal middle way and the middle way of emptiness? So the middle way of emptiness was something coined actually by the Buddha, a term coined by the Buddha um, in the Kachayana Sutta, which I mentioned the other day in the Pali Canon, where he answers Kachayana's question about right view and uh, what's right view. And he says right view is the Buddha's middle way, which falls between the two extreme views of it is or it exists on one hand, or it, and it isn't or it doesn't exist on the other hand. And uh, that's uh, his definition of the middle way. much more commonly, and what most people are much more familiar with, of course, is the Buddha defining the middle way as a middle way between sensual indulgence, indulgence in the sense pleasures, and um, hardcore asceticism, on the other hand. So, the middle way. But there's a second meaning of middle way, and that's uh, in the Pali Canon that the Buddha used. And that second meaning became the primary meaning... In the Mahayana teachings, Nagarjuna and others picked up uh, and really you could say the whole elaboration of, and profundity and sophistication and breadth of the teachings on emptiness in the, in the Mahayana, in the Buddhist Mahayana uh, and Vajrayana um, comes really out of uh, that that couple of sentences exchange. Um, in the Pali Canon between the Buddha and Kachina, where the Buddha uses the term middle way as an ontological uh, kind of teaching, uh, really has to do with emptiness, although he doesn't, as I pointed out there, use the word empty or emptiness in that exchange. It's still what we're talking about when we use those terms, empty and emptiness. So there's the middle way of emptiness, and then in... The soul-making teachings. When we talk about the nodes of the lattice, or the elements, or the aspects of the imaginal, we also have something called the imaginal middle way. So, what's the difference between these two? Um, because they've got similar-sounding titles. So, are they the same? or Are they different? Um, well, they're different, and 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 it's important to actually clarify this. So, we can also. Uh, you know, that that element of the lattice we can also, um, that we call imaginal middle way, we can also call it theatre-like quality, and we do or neither real nor not real. Those are perfectly adequate um, synonyms and uh, adequate terms for what we mean by the imaginal middle way. So all three, imaginal middle way, theatre-like quality, neither real nor not real, they're all saying the same thing. As an element of the imaginal, it it is though, like the other like the other elements, of the imaginal. It's primarily a description of the qualities of the imaginal realm. Something we notice, something noticed or empirically observed that is characteristic of images when they are more fully imaginal. So that's how the whole elements teaching came up uh, or, or arose. It was really um, m- me trying to. Uh, pinpoint the flavor of, of the terrain the flavor uh, of the realm what's characteristic of the realm of the imaginal because it's clear to me that you know images having uh, an, that were what I would call imaginal had different sets of qualities and implications and uh, aspects etc. than images used in other ways or in other systems where Ridwan, or or uh, other, other psychologies, or uh, you know other other things. So I was trying to um, kind of designate, pinpoint what's the difference. As such, it was just kind of what was involved is just a sort of hanging out with an image in 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 the mundus imaginalis, in the imaginal realm, and, and it, actually even that the mundus imaginalis is Corbin Corbin's term, and uh, uh, so we're, we're using it differently, the word imaginal, than he used it, which is different than how Hillman used it, etc. So, um, but it was really hanging out and then just noticing, noticing these subtle differences or subtle uh, as a characteristics of what I would call images uh, that are more fully imaginal in contrast to uh, images that are not really what we would call imaginal. So it's something, it's really a description, an observation, something we notice. And in that, it's actually, this imaginal middle way is quite a wide designation, okay? Um, Theater-like quality, neither real nor not real. It's quite, like the other elements, humility, uh, etc., grace. What's meant by that is quite broad. Um, The word itself needs to be the concept itself, the designation and Pinpointing itself needs to allow room to be able to stretch, and I'll come back to that in a minute, to be able to stretch, to broaden, uh, etc., to have soft and elastic edges. It's quite a wide designation. In contrast, when we talk about the emptiness middle way, the middle way of emptiness that the Buddha was talking about and Nagarjuna and others picked up on, the emptiness middle way is the result of a very careful usually long ontological inquiry in practice and in conception in other words after practicing with uh, with emptiness practices or ways of looking or analytical practices after um, really thinking it through and thinking it through in a very subtle way etc and sophisticated uh, bringing the philosophy with practice and um, conceptual work, meditative practice and conceptual work, what results is the middle way of emptiness. It's the result of that ontological inquiry. In um, uh, So while we, we can and, and we do entertain various sort of ontological systems and conceptual frameworks in uh, when we practice the imaginal and sensing the soul, There is not one ontology or ontological view, there's not one ontology or one ontological view that we are aiming towards, that we are hoping to arrive at or adopting exclusively. The imaginal middle way leaves ontological inquiry out of the forefront of imaginal practice and and sensing the soul practice. So emptiness middle way is a result of an ontological inquiry, and... Um, In in imaginal practice, we're kind of leaving that aside. Uh, We might do it beforehand or or around it, but the actual imaginal practice doesn't involve uh, ontological inquiry. And there's no one ontology, as I said, one ontological viewpoint that we're hoping to arrive at, and then we've got it. That's it. That's our ontology. So, of course, uh, and I'll come back to this, ontological inquiries may be, may become soul-making, or may be, or may become soul-making for some people at some times. Now, this whole question of ontology becomes very uh, exciting for the soul. Um, and thus, you know, images and fantasies build up around and in relation to ontological inquiries and ontological ideas. And it's also the case that the soul-making dynamic uh, the eros logos dynamic, will eventually shake up and expand whatever ontologies we profess or hold. But still, ontological inquiry is not primary in imaginal or sensing the soul practice. And we are not seeking an answer to an ontological question there, whereas in emptiness practice we are. We want to come to the answer, the truth, about the fact of emptiness. The universal truth there. Uh, so, as emptiness practices uh, and understandings deepen and refine, the emptiness middle way, the middle way of emptiness, gets clearer. And in a way, well, no, and narrower. It's more like a razor's edge. It's very fine. Uh, this between it is and it is not. It exists and it does not. N- not real. Neither real nor not real. From the emptiness point of view, the emptiness point of view becomes uh, clearer and much more um, like a razor's edge. In other words, the tendencies towards nihilism, it's not real, this isn't real, nothing's real on the one hand, and reification, it's real, it is, it really exists. On the other hand, the two extreme views that the Buddha pointed to, and again the Mayana picks up on a lot, uh, the tendencies towards nihilism on the one hand, reification on the other hand, they're gradually diminished, gradually as we go deeper and deeper with emptiness practice and emptiness understanding. Um, And as our understanding comes closer and closer to the sort of narrow tightrope of the middle way of emptiness so again to contrast the imaginal middle way in contrast the emptiness middle way is not such a precise or narrow concept partly because the whole imaginal process admits various ontologies um, or ontological systems as we've um, uh, pointed out several times in, in the past and illustrated in different talks and things so is less of a tightrope or a razor's edge, and more like a kind of avenue, a wide road, I don't know, a boulevard or something, than than a razor's edge, than a tightrope. So that within the range of the imaginable way, there can be various positions of more or less reification. understand? And again, the concept of the middle way, like the other concepts in soul-making dharma, has soft and elastic edges. Still, starting soul-making practice with a careful emphasis on kind of curbing the reificationist tendency and then, only only then, in time, widening the, the range of ontological views in play. Widening the range of ontological views about image or what we're sensing the soul. Exploring positions at different points on the width of that broad road of the imaginable middle way, that will be the most fruitful way to progress, that order, starting with careful emphasis on, as I said, curbing the reificationist tendency, and then uh, broadening out from there slowly, gradually. Because if one has, in the past, only reified images, if that's my history, I've I've only known and worked with images that I've reified, and that's mostly the case um, uh, for those who use images in psychological or spiritual or shamanic practice. Um, uh, that they're usually rarefied. Remember, even if a person says, well, "I don't, I don't, I'm not rarefying, I'm not rarefied, unless they really uh, are making it clear that they're not rarefying, you can pretty much bet that they're rarefied. You may not hear that word, but. It takes a lot of work to not reify something. So if one's used images in other ways, more conventional psychotherapies or um, spiritualities or shamanic practices, um, and, and the images have been reified, then it will be very difficult, I think, to come out of that habit of reification and, and kind of move towards the other side of this wide uh, road of the imaginal middle way and have the facility to explore a less rarefied stance. And if that's the case, if then I don't I cannot move away from the reificationist rarefication, side of the road to explore um, the less reified road, then that whole side of the road, that whole territory of soul-making possibility won't open up. The opposite direction of movement from a from a stricter non-reifying, which is what we t- Tend to emphasise at first from a stricter non reifying gradually to explore more rarefying positions. That won't be so difficult, or face so much inertia for us in our practice, because rarefying is actually a normal human human tendency, especially when we feel touched by an image or perception, um, when it matters to us, when it helps us. So, if we think about, you know, what will allow a greater total territory to be accessible and open to us, it will be, I think, if we proceed gradually in that order from being really quite strict and careful about the non-reifying as much as we can, um, without getting too, uh, policing it too tightly, getting too anxious about that um, for most people. It's all very individualist, but generally speaking, a, to, a greater total territory will be accessible and open up to us if we go from emphasizing the non reifying at first, and then and then gradually expand it to more uh, reified ontologies that rarefy more, rarefy images, etc. More. Okay. So uh, the measurement, in a way, just to sum up, is a is really just a, something observed, something noticed about a quality, an uh, aspect, uh, characteristic of, of images uh, that are more fully imaginal. The emptiness middle way is a result of a careful uh, ontological inquiry in practice and in, in conception. In the emptiness middle way, we're aiming for a kind of answer, a result to understand what that really means the emptiness middle way it's one very narrow razor's edge tightrope of truth between is and isn't Um, in imaginal practice we're actually not sticking to one ontology or ontological view um, or ontological system even Uh, so we can just as easily entertain uh, you know, an idea of a providential divinity, a providential Dharmakaya or Buddha nature that makes appear uh, to us um, images and even events and persons in our life, you know in response to what we need at a certain time in our path. We can entertain that kind of ontology as well as an ontology of a uh, Buddha nature and Dharmakaya. Uh, and divinity that does no such thing, that has no providence, as well as we can entertain uh, an ontology conceptual framework. there's no such thing as Buddha nature, or divinity, um, or Dharmakaya, in any of those kind of transcendent ways. So we have a range of ontologies, and we're not aiming at one necessarily. Um, and anyway, ontology is not forefront of our practice. And the imaginal middle way, in contrast to this narrow tightrope of truth that we're aiming for as a result of our inquiry, the emptiness, uh, so the imaginal middle way, um, is uh, is, a, is a wide boulevard. And we want to actually have freedom to take up any ontological position regarding rarefication on any of the points across that width of the boulevard, and see what they each do. But it might be easier if we start with the non rareification one, because so if we get too much into a habit of rarefying images, it, w- it will be very hard to um, then uh, open up non-rarefied images and all the soul soul realms and soul worlds that they open up. Okay, so that's a clarification, um, hopefully between the emptiness middle way and the imagination middle way. So, you know, as far as emptiness is concerned as well, it's, it's important to point out that from a strictly sort of narrow Buddha-Dharma point of view, all we need to know about ontology for the sake of liberation from suffering and liberation from avidya, fundamental ignorance, all we need to know about the ontology of things is that things are thoroughly, completely empty. Okay. Um, and, and if that realisation of emptiness, uh, or rather, let's say it this way, and that, that realisation of emptiness needs to have woven into it, or alongside it, or hopefully woven into it, an understanding of, uh, that we need to respect conventional reality, that there are some conventional realities that we really need to respect. As pointed out yesterday, if um, we have penetrated to that result of the emptiness middle way, the understanding of the thorough, deep, radical and comprehensive emptiness of all things, if we have done that via the ways of looking approach, then ethics and karma and dependent arising of world, self and world, um, dependent on attitude, dependent on... Um, action dependent on mind state, etc., all that is obvious. And and in fact woven in, it's obvious because it's woven into the very investigation into emptiness right from the beginning, as we talked about yesterday. And if we go deep enough in our inquiry into emptiness, in our penetration of the truth of emptiness, uh, to understand the middle way of emptiness in its deepest and, and uh, most precise sense, then we see that no self also is just a view. We can pick it up, there is no self, but it's just a view. It's not an ultimate truth. And um, the, view, the view of self becomes just as available, or available again, if you like, as the, as the view of no self. Emptiness is just a view emptiness is empty not self is just a view self is just a view and all of these become available as views we are only left with ways of looking but from a dharma perspective um, this is all we need to know about ontology that things are empty because that's what liberates us from suffering and from the root cause of suffering which is avijja. and Uh, hopefully woven into that understanding, uh, that ontological understanding that everything is empty, we also understand the need to respect some conventional realities, and hopefully, um, particularly around um, ethical consequences, karma, dependent arising, in that sense. And um, secondly, that we have the flexibility uh, to respect self as much as no self emptiness as much as not emptiness um, to not just respect, but to practice and to see those ways. So that's, from a strictly Buddha Dharma point of view, that's actually all we need to understand ontologically. And if you've really gone into the question of emptiness, you will realize that um, even a realization, a full realization of emptiness, still leaves a lot of questions about the exact ontology of different Conventional realities of different um, relative truths. In the history of Buddhism, there has been, you know, a vehement argument about this over 2,500 years. Um, certainly, once you get into into the Mahayana, and um, and certainly in Tibet, you know, really quite a lot of um, very sophisticated and hot-blooded polemic uh, debate around all this. So you only have to look at. Um, you know Mipam and, and Mipam Rinpoche from the turn of the twentieth century, just before and into the, into the early twentieth century. And his engages and um, dialogues with other traditions, including Gelug um, scholars, or look at some of the writings of um, the Karmapas, particularly I think the Eighth Karmapa, Miko uh, etc. This, especially when it comes to this question of the relationship between conventional and ultimate reality, uh, conventional truths and um, the truth of emptiness, um, the thingness of things, and the emptiness of things. Um, this is, you know, really quite a long-standing um, argument. Um, and then as, in, in terms of what it uh, then, how it then applies to Tantra as well, and much else, uh, there's, a, there's a lot there, you know, that's left open and open to debate some of that debate, particularly some of the things that Mipam and Miko Dorje got interested in, actually it's not... it it bears very much on what we actually understand by the emptiness of something. And so that... so some of the areas of that argument um, pertain to sort of, you know, the status of tantric deities, the ontological status of tantric deities and other things. But some of it actually pertains to what does emptiness mean? And therefore... Um, is this version of emptiness actually liberating or not? Now, I've gone into this um, uh, briefly, but in a fair amount of detail. It's quite a central piece of the last portions of, um, of Seeing the Free, so you can find it there, and you can also find some references there, if you're interested. But the, point, the main point is that even a full, uh, comprehensive, understanding of emptiness still leaves questions regarding the exact ontology of conventional realities. And we could say the same might be true of, um, for example, quantum physics as it goes deeper. What exactly is the ontological status, the reality status of a basic particle? It's a, you know, we think okay, um, this table is made, this desk is made from uh, molecules and atoms, etc., and those are made of protons and neutrons and electrons, and then we go down there's even more basic particles, etc., um, well, an electron is classified as a basic particle still, um, then what is the reality status, what is the ontological status of those basic particles? And it's not simple. As I mentioned the other day on a retreat at, at Guy House, Neil Spohr, one of the founders of quantum physics and a Nobel Prize winner. He said, everything we think of as real is made up of things that we cannot think of as real. Now, even more, uh, since his death, even um, space and time are regarded as um, emergent and not fundamental phenomena. At a quantum level they emerge, their are constructions, and in some sense also dependent on the observer. So Einstein did some of that work with his relativity theories, but then even more so at a quantum level. So we're still left with um, these questions about the ontology of different conventional realities. Um, and this is important, and when we then come to soul-making teachings, of course, um, that that it, they cannot help stimulating such questions, or they should stimulate such questions, and they do stimulate such questions. Not for everyone, um, but certainly for some people. And Some people will get very uh, derisive, uh, etc. Some people will be too easy, um, perhaps too lazy and, and quick to just adopt um, uh, adopt a certain ontological acceptance, but you know it's up to them in the end. I've been through all this in, in other talks. I'm not going to dwell on it too much anymore. Um, so, but the questions pertain. Uh, ontological questions are don't go away with regards to um, soul and image and soul making and all that. They are all empty, yes, but it's still, as I said, emptiness realization of emptiness gone all the way to the end still leaves questions about the exact ontology of different conventional realities. So, what about the ontology of soul? This is something I've talked about quite a lot, but very briefly, just to repeat, um, we can define soul in a couple of ways. One is, um, just soul is a kind of way of looking. It's a kind of way of looking, or, 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 or it's a group of ways of looking, even. It's any... Uh, soul is is the collection of ways of looking that um, are soul-making, that that open up a sense of soulfulness. That's what soul is, so that open up the elements of the imaginal, that deliver the elements of the Soul is just a way of looking, it's not an entity. Or, if we want to define soul as a kind of entity, it's that entity, that instrument, that organ, so to speak, in the human being, which looks in those ways looks in those ways that open up soulfulness, that support soulfulness, that engender uh, soulfulness and soul-making. So that soul-making then, um, if we think of soul as an entity, soul-making then is a kind of a making or a growing of that organ, of that instrument. A growing of its size, of its range, of its capacities, like a muscle that grows, or an organ, or a child's brain that's growing in its, in its capacity as an entity. Um So either it's not an entity, if we think of it as just as a kind of way of looking, or it's an entity, but that entity is just as empty as any other entity. It's just as empty as a self. And we use the language of self, it's just as uh, without without too much problem in our conventional exchanges with each other, in the way we think about our lives, in the way we relate to what's actually very important in our lives, we use the language of self. I want this, I don't want that, I really hope that, I feel this, etc. But if we use the language of uh, a, a, a sort of entity language uh, uh, for soul, then that entity of soul is empty like self is empty. Like the aggregates are empty, like the body is empty, empty in itself, empty of phenomenal existence, empty of um, truly being an, uh, an inherently existence thing, in existent thing. Vedana is empty. Consciousness is empty. A moment is empty. All, all the aggregates are empty. Any phenomenon is empty. When we, um, when I talked. I think it was in the mirrored gates and began to talk about sensing the soul and actually playing a little bit with um, opening up the ontological considerations or possibilities uh, of, of more reification a bit more reification when we're practicing sensing the soul um, and the perceptions that come up with sensing the soul. You know, That's a really interesting area as well. So why bother to go into all that? Well, partly for our own purposes, in the sense that um, you know, our conceptual framework, the whole logos of soul-making dharma, um, is really based in and on emptiness. It, it's based in ideas like create, discover, neither real nor not real, and all that. So it's simply um, rooted in that kind of, I would say, more... Sophisticated ontology and that kind of uh, uh, participatory ontology or an ontology of participation rather than a sort of uh, stark uh, notions of independent existence, as if that's what quali- qualifies for uh, reality as independent existence. So partly for our own purposes, it's based on a more uh, sophisticated. Ontology: the whole Logos, the whole conceptual framework of soul-making dharma is. But partly going, you know, explaining the ontology of soul, just briefly, just now repeating what I've said elsewhere, I think, Um, partly also to kind of um, proactively rebuff certain expected objections and critiques from either Buddhists who tend to think in a very, um, let's say, narrow and common way uh, and perhaps not not uh, not very well worked out uh, with a very not not very well worked out ontology that's trying to try and rebuff certain upset, uh, objections and critiques uh, example, well that's not buddha dharma if you're talking about soul didn't the buddha say that's not something real. That's just metaphysical speculation. Any language of soul must be just metaphysical speculation, and it's not. It's the opposite of uh, phenomenology, etc. I've gone into this um, at at great length um, elsewhere. I'm not going to repeat it too much now. Um, except we'll say a couple of things. Um, uh, so partly it's this sort of in 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 response to that kind of you know somewhat typical uh or typically expected objection um and partly is for our own purposes because it's actually rooted in in soul making is is necessarily rooted in a, a more sophisticated ontology and epistemology than the ones that most people in our culture are used to and that our culture um you know, typically re- regards as simply this is what's real, that's not real this is what's true and it's because X or Y in terms of independent existence etc socially agreed upon perceptions now it's interesting if you just li- linger on this just a little bit more um, some people in, in in the Dharma some uh, Expositions of Buddha Dharma, some explanations of Buddha Dharma, or of simply of kind of uh, mindfulness extractions from Buddha Dharma. Um, some people use reductionist uh, materialism in a kind of obvious and explicit way, and they explain Dharma and explain meditation, and even explain liberation, perhaps, um, from those premises, from the premises of a sort of reductionist uh, materialism. Um, In other words, in terms of atoms and neurological networks, etc., and neurotransmitters and all the rest of it. And they explain what's happening in meditation liberation as uh, perhaps a change or even a kind of increased um, efficacy um, of you know, for example, neural pathways. Other um, expositions of Buddha Dharma um, never mention atoms or that sort of things. The the components or the elements of reductionist materialism. They never mention them. They never perhaps even mention the classical scientific materialist worldview but they try to present a more, uh, what might seem to be a more phenomenological, let's put that in inverted commas, more phenomenological um, dharma, or a more existential, existentialist dharma, um, and a more phenomenological existentialist idea of suffering, of what suffering is, what the problem is, and of what liberation from suffering is or might be. So the whole thing is kind of given a more f- Attempted is a more phenomenological or existential approach without mentioning um, kind of scientific materialist um, elements or or views. But if we go into it, if I if I try and uh, adopt su- such a, or try and propose such a such an approach, um, I actually quickly realise that that kind of phenomenology, in inverted commas, is very limited. Because there's only one way of looking there. There's only one way of looking that's admitted, and that way of looking sees the truth. And this is how all human beings, or supposed, this is assumed, this is how all human beings, if they are honest and if they are brave, that's how they will experience self and world. They will experience it like this. This is what this phenomenology says, what a lot of phenomenologies do, actually. Um or attempts at ph- phenomenological philosophy and psychology. There's no place there for different ways of looking, um, okay. and different ways of looking than opening up um, different senses, whole different perceptions and uh, senses of self and world and cosmos, etc. And similarly, the existentialist kind of dharma rests on an assumption that the sort of the meaningless, flat cosmos of classical scientific materialism, it rests on the assumption that's a proven reality. So it, it rests on reductionist materialist ideas as a presumed background and basis, even if they are not mentioned, never mentioned. But that and and you know it's interesting that the, the fact that um reductionist materialist conceptions are assumed to be irrevocably proven as fact that may be part at least of what gives some of those existential Buddhists their um, sort of often kind of haughty and unbudgeable arrogance uh, that you that comes across in their stance and their tone problem with all that is that physics itself, the same scientific method that delivered that kind of view starting in the 16th, 17th century, let's say has as it developed, that same scientific method has begun to bring about the crumbling of that basis not just physics but also contemporary western philosophy and also uh, uh, was deconstructed and kind of demolished by N- N- Nagarjuna's dharma, etc. And the whole Mahayana take on on a deeper understanding of emptiness, deeper working out of what emptiness means. So that whole background view and basis... not mentioned, but assumed real and so rested on, it's no longer um, tenable and sure as a truth, as the reality of things. So we're in an interesting place right now uh, in terms of Western philosophy, I think also in terms of Buddha Buddhadharma, um, certainly in terms of um, modern science, And I think, as I've said, I think I've said um, elsewhere, I'll say it again now, I think, you know, ontology and also epistemology, which goes with it, which is, uh, how can I trust uh, um, this knowledge about what's real? How can I trust, uh, what do I trust? My senses, my thinking, my uh, scripture, other people's opinion. So... I've talked about this a lot elsewhere, just to say now, ontology and epistemology are never-ending explorations and questions. I don't think humanity will ever come to the end of these things, of these explorations, and their possibilities and the questions there. And as such, because of the um, never-ending, never-endingness, of that of ontology and uh, epistemology. There can be eros for it. Ontology itself, as I alluded to earlier, ontology itself can can become for us um, an erotic, imaginal other. The whole area, the whole domain, the whole inquiry, an image of oneself as ontological inquirer, etc. An image of oneself on that path. And there can be soul-making out of that erotic-imaginal relationship or in that, with that, erotic-imaginal uh, relationship with, with the never-endingness of ontology and ontological questions and explorations. So we can uh, get very excited about this, very into it, very struck by its possibilities for the soul. Soul making um, can come from ontology, from certain ontological views. I'll come back to that, but it can also come in relationship to ontology. So I don't remember in um, in the four parables of stone and light series if I if I said this, but I'll say it again. I I was thinking, you know. If you um, hear someone, with, say, with regard to ontology, or with regard to epistemology, or even with regard to things like emotions and ethics, human emotions and uh, ethics, if you hear someone... Or read someone and say they've figured it out. they know the answers now. It's like either any of those areas, ontology, epistemology, emotions, ethics, is probably other areas. we've figured it out we I know what the truth is there now, or on the other hand, if you hear someone well they say if you hear someone say they figure out, run a mile, I would run a mile from such a person, and they've come to the end of ontological inquiry, epistemological inquiry, they've understood fully. Um, the emo- you know what human emotions are and involve, how they arise, what they can be, or ethical questions. I would run a mile. And also, if you come across what's um, maybe just as popular these days, especially in, in people influenced by some um, fairly recent Western philosophy. Oh, I'm not interested in ontology. I'm not interested in epistemology That's all metaphysics. I put that aside. It's um, it's not relevant. It's not what the Buddha taught. It's not relevant to life, etc., etc. Um, I would run a mile, or you should run a mile. Either one of those extreme views is, um, uh, to, to me, problematic. No, let's put it. In. So just say it's problematic. I said the other day, and I pointed out several times recently, ontology and epistemology are inevitable. They are inevitable um, in in the very fabric of our perception. Not even as big, you know, philosophical uh, rambling inquiries with you know all, all this kind of conceptual grinding, etc but they are woven in. Ontological assessments, epistemological assessments, are implicitly non-verbally, non non conceptual or let's say non-verbally, sorry, they're non-verbally, non-unthinkingly woven in as conceptions into every perception we have as human beings. They're inevitable. Even if they're inconcludable questions of ontology... Ontology and epistemology are inevitable. And I don't know, but I have a sense, really, that you know, Western philosophy went through a phase, and um, I think called itself post-metaphysical. Well, uh, we might now be in a post-post-metaphysical phase, or just about to be, or something like that. So there's a lot here, uh, again, that can open up um, soul-making, that can be soul-making for us in these inquiries, but also allow more soul-making to open up, and I want to come back to that. But let's let's um, just stay with this uh, for a while and actually bring in the connection with uh, between eros and ontology. So again, let's see if I can try and convey what I'm, see if I can convey what I'm trying to... Trying to get out here. Um, the scientific methods attempt—you uh, know—it started with this attempt to sort of say, let's exclude affect, human affect, in other words, emotion and desire, which could be regarded as an affect. Let's exclude affect and desire from the process of inquiring into truth. And sci- the scientific methods, when it when when it arose in the you know sixteenth seventeenth century, really got going. Um, the scientific methods attempt to exclude affect and desire from the process of inquiring into truth, instigated and then installed for modernity for modern culture a kind of well, really a definition of truth as partly that which is independent of the affect or desire of an observer. So it kind of started with that, um, uh, this is our MO, this is our modus operandi, this is how we're going to go about things, and then that became a definition of truth. It instigated, then it installed it, so that that's how we tend to think of Um, what is true. Truth is that which is independent of the affect or desire of an observer. But if one realises, as one goes deeper into all these things, that there is um, no truth independent of the observer. Again, it seems to be um, very much that quantum physics, as much as some people don't like that conclusion that that is what quantum physics is, is concluding. has remained unchallenged for, you know, getting on for a hundred years now. Like Not unchallenged, but uh, it has remained um, without convincing challenge at all. Some people still really don't like it. Very few people have really picked it up and inquired and opened up and looked further into its implications. But that seems to be, un, so far, unbudgeable. If one realizes there's no uh, and as I said sim- similar um, conclusions from Western philosophies and certainly from Buddha Dharma and emptiness and the ways of looking approach, if one realizes there is no truth independent of the observer, then the way of looking of the observer must be considered and why then can't affect be readmitted in my readmission of the observer and the position of the observer and what the observer does and how the observer looks? Why can't I readmit affect and desire and even eros? And perhaps they're given um, even equal status with any other affects. So desire and eros are um, given equal status with other affects. They're just all part of um, this idea that truth doesn't exist independently of the observer—there are just ways of looking. No ultimate truth, just ways of looking. And so, there's what I see with this affect, what I see with that affect, what I see when there's eros, what I see when there's um, some other emotion, etc. We can go a, a little bit, a little bit further into this, push in a slightly different way. If the truth—put that even in inverted commas—is instead kind of Something that's infinitely penetrable. So it's not so much there are lots of different angles on something, but it's more that truth is something infinitely penetrable. Is a journey into dimensionality. And yes, we might say dimensionality and divinity. A journey of penetration, if you like, or uh, opening to, if you want a more receptive mode, opening deeper to. Opening oneself deeper to then if truth is defined that way as infinitely penetrable and a journey, then there is no one final ultimate truth except this general kind of journey into more disclosures, more um, discoveries and if that is what reality is, this this deepening journey, never-ending journey infinite infinite sort of matter penetrative movement if that's what reality is then it is, is exactly eros in the way that we are using that word right? eros as we define it in the way that it uh, wants closeness uh, c- contact, wants to know wants to connect with and in that wanting more penetration wanting more opening it, in, it um, ignites the soul making dynamic and that, and that allows more Deeper penetration, the generation of more beyonds, the discovery of more facets and aspects of what it is that we're uh, uh, in relationship with, what our subject is, what, the, what we're penetrating, etc. So it's it's exactly eros in the way that we in the soul making are using that word. It's exactly eros that which reveals the truth and reality. And and in that case, its eros is more valuable than other effects and then an absence of, of, of an effect an emotion you understand because eros has this has this uh, tendency to penetrate further and if uh, truth is something that's infinitely penetrable rather than just kind of horizontally infinite in terms of sort of perspectives around a circle. It's exactly Eros, which is uh, what opens it. And that that view of truth and reality does not posit truth and reality as as what is independent of the observer, independent of observing. It it recognizes the profound participation of the soul in creating, discovering what is disclosed. Creating slash discovering what is disclosed. (laughs) to me this is an interesting thing and perhaps it can be developed this idea of eros as having actually ontological value more significant and powerful um, epistemological ontological value so the theologian and, and philosopher john milbank i'm just starting to get his know, to get to know his work and um, yeah I find it very very fascinating very fascinating some of the uh, overlaps and um common areas common uh, desires as well um between his work in the really the what, what they call radical orthodoxy movement um kind of ca- catholic uh theology um finding it very interesting those overlaps I only know his work a little bit and there's a famous book he wrote theology and social theory which i've just picked up and I was uh, haven't got very far in it at all I was just actually on the preface as a preface to the second edition and he wrote um, he wrote this the nihilistic vision uh, which is what he means by this sort of flat purposeless uh, uh, cosmos of of uh, Of scientism, scientific materialism, the nihilistic vision makes its conclusions from a cold reason that disallows to the moods of eros, anxiety, boredom, trust, poetic response, faith, hope, charity, and so forth, an ontologically disclosive status. Just what I was saying before, it's like affect is uh, is from the start ruled out. Of any definition of truth so the mood the affect of eros, anxiety, boredom trust, poetic response, faith, hope, charity and so forth um, are, are disallowed any ontologically disclosive status, they don't tell you in other words anything, uh, they don't open uh, for us any, any, any knowledge about anything that's real ontologically disclosive but if our ontology admits a category of the real, which yet includes our participation in creativity, our poetic response as well, then eros, and, and secondarily, you know, other emotions, emotions like uh, those Milbank listed above, or as I just, as I just mentioned, um, eros does disclose or open up to us the truth, or we could say truths. Truth as a journey into truth, infinitely penetrable truth, as I explained. To me, this is really, really interesting. Second point in in the scientific uh, methods, sort of starting points, and then what, what was really axiomatic uh, in terms of methodology of approach, but then became, um, you know, then then actually spread from methodologic, methodological uh, uh, technique or process to, um, to assumption about reality, an unquestioned assumption about reality. The second one, apart from the, letting go, the, the ruling out of affect and desire, truth is only what, uh, what is observed in the absence of affect and desire. Of course, this has been questioned from other other um, directions as well. But a second, um, uh, I, I first came across uh, in reading Catherine Catherine Pickstock. She has a book called After Writing. I found it quite a difficult read the language, but she's a colleague, I think, of uh, John Milbank, and and she makes the point in her book After Writing that. Descartes, who was, of course, was one of the founders of the scientific method, um, defined reality as that which is clear and discreet and easily comprehended by the mind. Reality is defined as that which is clear, discrete, and easily comprehended by the mind. Now, that definition or delineation of Objects to be investigated. Then said, "Okay, what is reality? It's this. It's what's clear, discrete, and easily comprehended by mind. And that, that's what we should investigate. We should f- just forget about everything else because it doesn't. It's not. It's not real. We want to investigate the real. That's what science is. So that definition or delineation of ob- objects to be investigated, as I said, came then itself to be taken as a truth. Initially, it was just these are the objects we're going to investigate." the ones that are clear, discrete, and easily comprehended by the mind. But then, at some point, it came to be, um, this is what is true. It was taken itself as a truth. Anything that did not fit that definition of being clear, discrete, and easily comprehended by the mind was regarded as untrue, unreal, and unworthy of attention. Now, you can see, again, in, if someone uh, in, in quantum physics, for example, or in relativistic physics, if someone tries to, tries to um, say, well, the really simple things, the really clear, discrete things um, and easily comprehended, are these little billiard balls of basic particles, or things like space and, and time. And time, as Newton defined absolute space, absolute time is just kind of there, a big empty space. Uh, not doing anything, not affected by anything, and time just flows—absolute time—and these little billiard balls are pretty much the simplest, most discrete, clear things that they are. They're very easy to understand. It's just a little, a little billiard ball. Well, you can't, you, something you can't chop further, chop up further. But again, starting from that view, from Descartes, quantum physics has just then—if uh, you ask someone, well, what really is an electron? you better have a lot of patience and uh, a good bladder because we don't know. And the answer is definitely not simple. It's definitely not something that's either clear or discreet or easily comprehended by the mind. So the very starting premise of a mode of investigation here became a definition of truth. And when the mode of investigation so the scientific method continued along those lines it just completely decimated its very starting point and that definition. But for our purposes, I want to say again something about eros in relationship to ontology and the ontological value and place uh, potentially of eros. Epistemological and ontological value and place of eros. Because eros... When allowed to stimulate the soul-making dynamic, and that's what we again—that's what we mean by eros in its bigger definition, in its larger definition—eros will open up exactly what does not fit inside Descartes' definition. Here is this object, and um, if if I, if there's eros um, for it in relationship to it, that object begins to become to us. More mysterious, less comprehensible because because unfathomable it becomes unfathomable, it becomes not discreet um, because it possesses uh, dimensionality shading into divinity, it possesses soft and elastic edges, it becomes uh, poly aspected and complex rather than single and simple, so again. Um, it's eros uh, that opens up uh, exactly, uh, or that, that bursts open uh, Descartes' definition, in much the same way as, as physics has done. It's interesting, too, when I am just picking up on just one of those words in in, uh, the little quote from John Milbank, uh, noted the the word boredom there, which I found was interesting. So you tend to think, oh, well, that's not a very uh, productive or creative affect or emotion. So I don't know quite what he meant, but um, it was there, it sort of, as a, in a list of affects with, you know, truth-indicative power, truth-indicating power, uh, with potentially ontological disclosive status. Or rather, actually, all he was saying in that quote was that it had been ruled out, but by implication. Might it be there? Even boredom. Might our boredom with, for example, the sort of, you know, typical, uh, common, Uh, insistence on the sort of uh, hegemony of of, of, uh, the truth of a flat, um, flatly materialist cosmos, might our boredom with that idea, a boredom with this insistence on this is the existential reality of things, a boredom with the sort of little billiard ball idea of matter and now even of mind, a boredom of uh, with reduction reductionist materialism. Might our boredom at those views and, and those views being you know being inundated, surrounded by those views, and being inflicted and uh, on us uh, oppressed by them. Might our boredom be a feeling to trust, telling us that something in that picture is is not right, not true. So I don't know what Milbank meant, but that's something I was wondering. Boredom as a, a valid, affective, uh, and effective uh, indicator of truth. Truth in inverted commas. If we have this more open uh, idea of what truth is, actually, just lingering with that. If we, if we, um, again. If we if we do conceive of truth, and again, I feel like I want to put it in, in inverted commas, but truth conceived more as a process, a journey, a deepening and opening that is never-ending. If we conceive it that way, and if it is Eros um, above or as much as anything else which drives that journey and reveals or opens truth because of the, of the Eros-Psychologos dynamic... Then the discoveries on the way are still valid as partial provisional truths. they may be partial truths, but they're provisional truths and and so we see parallels to that in science again some some of this overlaps with things I said on the full parable series so just as um in in the history of science newton's laws of uh, mechanics and gravitation for example will function they do function very well to predict outcomes within a limited range within a limited range uh, of uh, accuracy but also of um, uh, you know the phenomena that we're dealing with Newton's laws function you know very well to predict outcomes it was Newton's laws that uh, enable um you know to enable us to land a rocket on the moon, it was very complicated mathematics uh, working that out um and even to you know when they sent a probe to i can't remember where it was Jupiter or Neptune, you know it's tremendous accuracy of prediction it was all coming basically from Newtonian mathematics and equations so it functions very well to predict outcomes how this cannonball will fly exactly where this tennis ball will land how high it will go whatever Um, within a limited range and because of that because they predicted uh, outcomes so well for so long before the stuff that didn't fit they seemed for so long absolutely true because they functioned so well to predict outcomes but in fact Newton's laws are only... I mean, does the word law qualify anymore? Uh, they're only, in fact, uh, partially or provisionally true. They've been superseded by Einstein's general relative, special and general relativity theories, the conceptions and the equations. And so there's something in science where we see this, what we can call provisional truth. It's not like Newton's laws are kind of completely not true or irrelevant or they don't are not completely adequate to a certain level. It depends what we want to do. And depends also um, uh, not just what we want to do or want to calculate or want to figure out or explain, but also depends on what our idea of truth is. But we see a similar thing in Dharma. So that the relative truth of dependent fabrication, dependent unfabricating, it still functions. And from its basis, from an understanding of, um, yes, if there's clinging, if there's aversion, if there's um, selfing to some degree, it will fabricate more. If, to the degree that I let go of clinging, let go of aversion, let go of unfabricating, let go of delusion, avidja, there will be unfabricating. So from the basis of that relative truth, we can accurately predict, um, as I was sharing recently, you know, the fact of, yeah, it, when you direct Metta at phenomena, I'm not looking elsewhere, I'm keeping this phenomenon in my attention, but directing Metta and Compassion right at it, as I uh, pay attention to it, and the phenomenon fades. Or the same thing as I mentioned yesterday, if I view something as anatta, as I'm paying attention to it, or any of the other three characteristics, there'll be some degree of fading. Even though fabrication and dependent origination, as as we would conventionally understand them, to be operating between separable uh, phenomena, this gives rise to that, dependent on this comes this, etc., as if they're separable and real entities, phenomena that whole view of fabrication and dependent rising is not ultimately true this is fabricated by the mind self is fabricated by clinging or this link in dependent ri- origination um, uh, is dependent on that link of dependent origination the twelve links and they're separable kind of real entities that's not actually ultimately true But the relative truth of dependent fabrication and dependent unfabricating still functions, just as um, Newton's laws still function. They, they have a provisional truth to them. And impermanent as well is a, is a provisional truth. It's a relative or conventional truth. Ultimately, neither impermanent nor permanent is true of anything, as Nagarjuna points out. Because time is empty. Other reasons too. So there's a parallel here um, in these three domains. Science, classical Dharma, but also uh, when we get into soul-making. And um, the whole idea that conventional truths, the truths that open up um, through science, through uh, the conventional truths of classical Dharma and the conventional truths of of what we encounter in soul-making. These are provisional truths. They're provisional truths. But we can still have a journey, a directionality, a sort of infinite penetrability into truth in the bigger sense. So if we stay with this idea of conventional truth, you know, something else I want to point out um, is that very easily conventional truths are assumed real. So that's why I say conventional truths are provisional truths. Conventional truths are provisional truths. It doesn't mean they're worthless. It doesn't mean they are worthless does not mean they do not have a place. It doesn't mean they can't be relied on. The cause and effect, reliably, if I drop, you know, something heavy on my head, it'll it'll... It's actually not such a good example, but um, uh, cause and effect. uh, Conventional truth still functions. It's a provisional truth. Provisional truth can still be relied upon to a certain extent within certain uh, provisos, within certain limits. What happens is conventional truths are are then usually assumed to be real in all kinds of ways. Conventional truths are typically assumed to be real are assumed to be ultimate truths. So that's really one thing to be very, very important, uh, very, very uh, aware of and to be concerned with and it's something talked so, so much about and, and written about and, you know. But there's a second thing which is also... Um, uh, Important. I've also mentioned it before, but it's really worth emphasising again, and maybe with a slightly different illustration and, and angle. When we assume, uh, or when we adopt a conventional truth, um, one question is, is it real? Is it ultimately real, or is it just a conventional and provisional truth? But a second question is, what does the adoption of this conventional truth lead to? When I assume and conceive and look in the terms of this conventional truth, this provisional truth. What does it open up for me? And what does it close for me? What does it bar from my experience, from my understanding, from my journey, from my life and practice? So, let me give an example. Um, Recently, I taught the uh, journal retreat at Guy House, and well, I, well, I am very, very ill. Um, probably in the last stages of my life, and um, uh, with with a lot of pain, and uh, experimenting with, you know, the doctors are experimenting, trying to find the right medication for pain, and sometimes it's just making me foggy and affecting me in all kinds of ways, and tired, and other times really not uh, touching the pain very much, so there's a lot of pain, there's a lot of difficulty, there's not a lot of energy, a lot of my time is spent uh, struggling with my digestion, or on the toilet, or whatever. And um, I managed, uh, with the help of the angels, I think, to uh, teach... This is- 23-day retreat or whatever it was just recently at Guy House, Jana Retreat, and several people said or wrote to me some, something like, your willpower is amazing. Wow, you have such willpower. But, and I, you know, I appreciate the uh, affection and the sort of, I guess what's a kind of compliment there, but I, I want to just linger on this, although it, it sounds anal and says... Uh, I just want to linger on this, because if, if a person is conceiving of that, this is what a dying person is choosing to do, and then somehow able to sustain um, over time, teaching every day for hours, uh, despite all, else, all the other challenges. And if one conceives of that as a result of willpower, what's that actually implying? Willpower, to me, implies, or the meaning of what is willpower, will, what is the will, is, I don't know, a faculty of the ego or the self that can decide autonomously to do or not to do something arbitrary. In other words, what it decides to do or not do is irrelevant. Um... You understand? It's just, it's just a matter of, of, uh, of something called willpower. The ability, the capacity is purely a matter of the strength and steadiness of something called will. What about love? What about love of something? What about Eros again? Does that have no place in um, why something is possible? Why something is sustainable? What about the call, uh, the calling or the wish of the daemon, the demon? What about a sense of duty, a sense that honouring the demands of the angel is more important, more beautiful, more sacred than living comfortably, or longer even, or living with pleasant Vedana, or at least minimally unpleasant Vedana? Of course, even before we get talking about eros and angels and uh, soul duty and all love and all that, what about just other factors like the capacity to see in different ways, the emptiness of dukkha, the emptiness of difficulty? What about qualities like patience? Patience to stay with uh, what's difficult, what we call forbearance. It's one of the six paramis in... in um, I think it's one of the six paramis the Buddha religion certainly one of the ten paramis of Mahayana. So there's a whole level that we could just look at in terms of classical Buddha Dharma teachings that actually involved, rather than just simplifying it into this thing called will. But what I want to, what I want to emphasize more is what about other dimensions of being? Aspects of our psychology, yeah. love, eros. Again, the calling of the daemon, the sense of duty, the demands of the angel, and the sense of that being more important than anything else in life. The honouring of that. That's more important, more beautiful, more sacred, as I said, than, than comfort or minimising unpleasant etc. And if such a person is thinking in this way that doesn't include uh, love, eros, the demands of the angel, the, 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 uh, the phenomenological fact of the call or the wish of the daemon, or, or the sense of the duty to the angel. If they are thinking that without any of that, and if they are on top of that explicitly or even subtly, implicitly comparing, let's say, themselves and their willpower to mine, and judging mine, again I want to put that in inverted commas, because I don't think of it in terms of willpower really, and they're judging mine to be more, then they may be simply rather not understanding their own psychology, let alone my psychology, their own psychology, fully or finely or accurately or carefully enough. So their, what seems like to them, perhaps their relative absence um, of, or their relatively weak willpower, is uh, really a kind of, um, I say really, because otherwise they would mention it, otherwise it would be included in, in how they assessed um, uh, is what seems to them uh, something quite remarkable, this feat of teaching through all that. Their relative absence um, of will, something called willpower, relatively weak willpower, is really an absence of connection with their demon, or their angel. A blocking, perhaps, somehow, of that connection and of their eros. And an inability to sense themselves as image and sense their lives with soul. So I may come back to this, because all this actually bears on um, questions of ethics, um, on ethical choices. It applies, uh, let's say, to ethical choices and to our individual ethos, our individual character. I may come back to this in another talk. Now, of course, uh, it's not that... um, someone who has uh, the kind of an erotic relationship with a calling or or project or a creative project or um, an offering that they want to give or a service that they want to do it's not that someone who has um, a sense of eros and duty to the angel and demands of the the daemon and all that love it's not that they will always feel Um, that way they always feel filled with love and eros and uh, the juiciness of all that Uh, so of course there will be times when the sense of um, of calling of love eros is not there or is much diminished and then there's there may be at those times a reliance on something we could call will or resolution or discipline or something actually i'm going to come back to those words um but it's like it's like parenting or being in a long-term relationship you know deep down that you love something even um And, and and that you're totally committed to it and that it's meaningful and important, you know that, even at the times you are not, and it's that knowledge that sustains. It's not simple willpower, it's a knowledge of of the, the, the soul depth of something, even at the time you're not feeling that love or Eros so directly. So, risk considerable risk probably of of, uh, sounding anal and maybe crossing the line into some kind of um, anality about words and the words people use Um, if someone had said to me or if they'd used the word discipline on the other hand rather than will um, because will just means from the Latin just means I want I want something Um, it's from I I just to stay with the intention, discipline, on the other hand, um, is you know related to the word disciple, and from the Latin disciplina, uh, which means teaching or dis- discipulus, which is a pupil, Discere is, is to learn in Latin when, when If a person uses that word or if I think about it in those terms, there's a discipline involved in staying steady and showing up and offering that despite everything all the challenges. Discipline implies uh, it, that it's not self-enclosed. It's not self-deciding. Uh, it's not totally self-instigating and self-actualizing, as the, the, the word will is. We now commonly understand, actually, both words, will and discipline. But going more into the root of, of, of the word discipline, it could open out uh, um, a different sense. It implies a relationship, at least its etymology implies a relationship, an imaginal relationship perhaps. The image of um, offering something, the image of being a servant, uh, doing one's duty, the image of what one wants to offer, the image of the retreat, the image of the teachings, the image of passing something on. The word discipline, in its more etymological meaning, um, invokes implies um, involves relationship. It can become imaginal relationship and humility. I have to be humble to learn from this person or that person or this thing or that event or situation or this experience. I have to be humble. Something has to be greater than me, the one who teaches the one uh, the thing that teaches me and it implies uh, in all that there is implied an other. And that can um, uh, become an erotic, imaginal other. So it's possible that the whole thing becomes an imaginal constellation. So if we're talking about ethics and what it takes to stay uh, true to uh, uh, one's ethics, and really stand firm, courageously, unmovingly, unwaveringly, it may be that there's an image of that virtue, as we touched on in the Sealer and Soul Talks on the Four Parables retreat, of uh, course. The, the virtue itself has become image, has become ideational, imaginal. And there's other there, and I'm in an erotic, imaginal relationship with that other. I'm a discipulus um, uh, and humble in relation to that other. But it also might be, like I said, a work project, a certain duty, a creative art project. Etienne Surya talks about the angel of the work, where a disciple of the angel of the work, perhaps. Or, just opening up words now, just to get a fuller sense of what, what, what can be involved here when things are difficult, when things are challenging, when we want uh, how our our sense of things can be extended, put it that way, and not um, shrunken and amputated to fit into narrow and flat psychologies and philosophies. So the word discipline could potentially, if we look at its etymology, open up more. And another word is resolve. So a person could have used the word resolve. Oh, you have such such incredible resolve. And again, we typically hear these words discipline, resolve, etc., just as we hear the word will as something totally um, self-instigated, um, self-initiated, self-sustaining, self-actualizing. But the word resolve is from... Yeah, again, Latin, re solvere, uh, which means re again, and solvere is to loosen, to loosen again. And solvere means to loosen, to, rele- to or to release, but one of its meanings is to free from debt. So to free from debt again. What, what it might it mean? To free from debt to the angel again, because the angel's demands are infinite, never-ending. So, I honour the angel by uh, trying as best as I can to um, discern what my duty is and to carry that out as best as I can. And it will be um, not an exact copy of whatever the image is or whatever the angel seems to be completely... I will always fall short. We've talked about this before. But there's... uh, in that resolve... There is. I'm. I'm freeing myself from debt because I'm paying my debt. Then I'm freed from that debt. The debt to the angel, to the demon, the duty. And as I said, ray again because it will be. It will never end. And there's another duty. And the angel is always out ahead. Or again if we again want to open up the the potential meanings here someone might have used the word sacrifice I think someone did Um, and that means in Latin sacre fice fice is to make and sacre is related to sacred, holy to make holy or sacred so to me that would um, fit better now this isn't about me sort of sacrifice, oh, it's like some kind of grandiose thing about Rob or whatever, any of it. I really want to point, um, again, I want to point something out about uh, what I started what, uh, here with here was the general point about what conventional truths um, are we adopting, uh, what do they lead to? The conventional truths that we adopt, the provisional truths that we adopt, In this case, about psychology, what do they lead to? What do they open up or what do they limit? If someone thinks in terms of certain ways, in terms of words like will, discipline, resolve, thinks of them as being self-enclosed, self-instigating, etc., Sacrifice, it's, it's already, uh, uh, well, hopefully it's already got the, the hint of another level in it, because it's already got the implication of making something holy or sacred, but, but it can lose that, it has lost that a lot in our culture. So this isn't about me, I want to open up something about in the ways that we tend to think uh, about our psychology, about what drives us, about what we're doing, about what makes certain things possible or not question is what do these ideas what are the truths we are grasping at and holding on to or even just adopting open up or not? Where do they take us? So if we if we go with the etymology of sacrifice, um, you know, uh, making holy, making sacred, what's holy? What's sacred here? Again the angel and the angel of the work. You know, very often Most of the time, these days, when I teach, I have an image of um, not just contemporary uh, practitioners and students, but um, an image of of the unknown future uh, practitioners. The unknown, uh, they will never be known to me, they're in the future. Elsewhere uh, in space, elsewhere in time the Sangha in the future becomes a sacred imaginal other to me, is sensed as sacred. And to somehow um, refract that angel of the work into uh, this, this plane of existence, let's say, to refract that is sacred. To do And to make work for that is a doing for what is sacred. Fice doing, sacre, sacred, sacrifice, doing for what is sacred. And feel it as a making sacred. So again, in such a... If we're so used to certain psychologies, all this may sound pompous or grandiose, and of course there's that danger and the ego gets hold of it, and it's reified, and all, all this other stuff, but if, if we hold it in the right way, in the soul-making way, um, actually it opens up dimensions, and distances, and, and perspectives, and, and possibilities. We're then fueled by and supported by something very different than my will. this kind of flatly conceived, most mechanistic model of psychology. Even when I said, you know, earlier, and, and it's important to really understand this, um, you know, there will be times, of course there's times, of course there's times when one doesn't have um, the sense of the other, of the calling, of the eros, of the love. And then and then one perhaps it is in a mode of like, just, okay, just, I've just got to get through this. Or the sense of the other, the love, the eros, the image is much diminished. But then we have this other word, commitment, in English. And again, it's like long-term relationship or parenting. One's committed. And again, uh, col, from the Latin, comitere, which means to put together or to join. To join. You make a commitment, you join but what are we joining here? I'm joining with my partner or I'm a commitment to my children or their education or their upbringing, whatever it is, their, you know, their safety. But we could also say, um, what are we joining? I'm in those times when it does feel um, flat and like a drudge because I'm not so um, seeing with a sense of soul. There isn't the depth and the eros and the calling and the love. There's not the sense of it in that moment. What, what are we joining? We're joining that very flat drudgery to the uh, knowledge of the holy. Like I said, we, um, in a long term, you're resting on that knowledge in long term commitments, long term relationships, or parenting, whatever it is. And we could say we're joining this that feels like flat drudgery we're joining it to the holy we're joining the holy to the flat drudgery it's joined like by an umbilical cord then it's fed by that knowledge and by that sense <laughs> after they also you know um, even just this morning I felt really I don't know if it's some of the drugs they're giving me at the moment, some of the medication, or what it is. But I'm so tired, um, so lacking in mental energy, etc. Um, so sleepy, really. Um, so How am I going to do these talks later on? How am I going to? How am I going to do that? And just with very what seemed like very very uh, reduced mental capacity, I was sitting in sort of attempted meditation, then at some point, you know, I read the ideas, these very ideas I'm talking about today, the ideas that I I want to communicate um, became sensed also as angels. Yes, the idea became erotic, imaginal, other, and angelic. They want to be communicated. These ideas, some of the things I've been talking about today, want to be communicated. Again, there's a parallel with uh, the notion of the ideational-imaginal, which I introduced on, on uh, the Four Parables retreat. So the ideas, then, are sensed with soul, and they become images, they become imaginal images. Then even when my mind feels really so tired, so foggy, so sleepy, so lacking in energy and brightness, I can sense as other, it's not as other than me, I can sense their energy, these idea angels, these angel ideas. I can sense as other their energy, their brightness, their desire and eros to be made manifest. And somehow, somehow I, I can trust that their eros will enable that manifestation. So, you know, this question, what does a conventional truth that I'm adopting, what does it deliver? Where does it take me? What does it open up? What does it close? And the answer is, selves and others and worlds and cosmoses depend on the conventional truths I entertain or adopt and much more powerfully when I assume they're real. We might limit certain certain avenues, certain whole realms of opening and being, possibility, conception, all of it. Again, willpower versus Eros or Daemon. To me, it's a it's a relative I mean it's a it's a helpful psychological notion. These psychological theories, assumptions, so-called realities. It's a helpful idea, but compared with eros and demon, it, it's very much less rich. And and if we just have notions of willpower, we're actually, um, again, I, I think, missing part of our psychology. We're totally not seeing part of our psychology. One could even go further and try and reduce willpower. You know, in this kind of currents of reductionism in psychology they exist. And you could try and reduce willpower to a kind of um, quasi electronic circuit of intentions and Vedana. And then the question is whether the reactions to uh, to Vedana, either uh, unpleasant Vedana or pleasant Vedana that are not uh, you know associated with what it is that your intention has set out to do. Someone says all oh, the pleasant Vedna of, you know, having a nice long rest when I could be up preparing talks or interviewing or whatever. The pleasant vagueness of eating something that I know might be pleasant while it's in my mouth, but then will later uh, be difficult in my digestive system, which may affect my capacity to teach, etc. One could try and reduce willpower to to this idea of a sort of you know, quasi-electronic circle of intentions moving like little uh, along electronic circuits and Vedana and then the question is whether the reactions to the Vedana overpower or deflect the intention. And you've got a series of little gates in the circuit and uh one zero zero one one zero zero one zero 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 one, you know, whatever as uh, and, you kind of, and it depends on each uh, electronic circuit junction whether the reaction has overpowered or deflected or has the intention stayed true to its course. And one can have a neurological model that's some, something uh, along the lines, probably a lot more complex, or something along the lines of that. Does that kind of reductionist explanation, does it constitute for us an understanding what does it do to our lives? Does it enrich our lives? I mean, it might help you know, at times to, to frame our process, our experience, our practice in, in, in those kinds of ways. So here's an intention, here's a Vedana arising, careful with the reaction, etc. Can, it, can it, uh, my reaction uh, be taken care of so it doesn't deflect the, uh, the intention from its course or overpower it? But that's only one conceptual framework. One way of looking, really, one conceptual framework, let's say. And it, it, the important thing I want to say right now is it misses so much else out. Even if uh, we think and practice that way, and even if, through thinking and practicing that way, we're able to better stay with an intention despite many incidents of that intention encountering unpleasant Vedana or pleasant Vedana, pulling it away, or thoughts and beliefs that uh, may deflect it even if we're able to do that so that we're able to get to do what was important or meaningful for us because our intention saves stay steady. Such a framework or conceptual framework does nothing then to illuminate what actually is meaningful to us. Does nothing to illuminate meaningfulness itself. What what is meaningfulness in such a how how am I going to explain meaningfulness in terms of these neural circuits and uh, gates shutting or opening or neurotransmitters being secreted from one neuron to another or movement of atoms uh, molecules across a membrane or electrons well we'd have to reduce it again other than me- meaningfulness and what is meaningful is just another pleasant Well, it's just another one or zero or whatever or even meaningfulness that just becomes yes the meaningfulness uh, node of the circuit it's just another one or zero or whatever on the kind of binary circuit computer of the model of the brain, the mind. Such a poor and impoverishing psychology. Yes, to a certain extent, it might be useful in terms of we can adapt that kind of thinking to a way of thinking about mindfulness. But even then, it leaves so much out. It's it's poor and it's impoverishing as a psychology. And all this becomes really important when we when we talk about ethics, and I hope to I uh, hope to do so in a few days <clears throat> um, to talk more about ethics and virtues and reductionist um, behaviorist explanations that try to uh, reduce our notions of ethics or virtues and try to kind of decimate them, really, into um, more reductive and behaviourist notions. So Charles Taylor has um, written uh, about this several times, a philosopher, Canadian philosopher. I think he's still alive, he's pretty old now. Um, one of the things he says in uh, uh, is uh, in a book called Sources of the Self, I think he says it elsewhere as well, but... Um, is that explanations like that are are actually end up being of, he says no use, I would say almost no use for a person living life. Um, Certainly when it comes to ethics and virtues, they're, they're no use for a person living life. They leave out, he says, actually indispensable ideas and terms. Again, this is actually, this is quite pernicious, because again, we tend to think, well, a real understanding, a real explanation of, let's say, ethical behaviour or our feelings about virtues or what's really going on when we're ethical or, or virtuous or, or whatever, or what's really going on in terms of will and, and that sort of thing. Um, it must be, a real explanation must be based in realities, and the only realities are the realities that natural science or basically physics um, has decided are real. In other words, atoms, electrons, uh and neutrons protons and all the rest of it everything else is not really real so try and explain everything from from uh, using those those constituents so many problems with that have gone into already here uh, in this talk and in other talks but the point he makes is that for human beings in a cosmos where there are human beings attempts at you know reductionist and I'd say purely neurological, for example, explanations, which anyway always fall short of actually explaining anything. For example, they don't explain consciousness or mind from matter. They haven't yet, and I don't think they ever will. They actually fall short. But part of that, um, for human beings, in a cosmos where there are human beings, um, such attempts... You know, purely neurological, purely reductionist so-called explanations, don't actually form the best account. The best account means what makes sense of things, what do I need to use as a human being in order to make sense of things, in order to navigate the world of ethical choices. And I, I use the term ethical choice in a very wide sense to include things like, here is something that feels important to me, and there's a lot of reasons why I could... Um, decide not to do it, with all these other challenging considerations. So that's ethos ethics as well. They're provisional truths, but they're they're not necessarily the best accounts, because they're not the accounts... um, I cannot talk in those terms and explain to myself in those terms of reductionist neurology in a way that... um, make sense to me of the choices I need to make and of what will help me make those choices and make me uh, help me to carry them out and stay steady etc so just as um, just as certain notions or models in physics what's called the standard model of particle physics seem to be for now it's it's, uh, actually hitting some serious problems but seem to be for now for us, the best account we can manage of physical reality. When we get to the human reality, they're not the best account anymore. They're simply not the best account. All right, so this, this question, this inquiry, really important, so crucial. What does this conventional truth that I'm holding, that I'm adopting, that I'm even um, just entertaining... What does it lead me to? What does it bring? What are its consequences for my experience, for my sense of things, for my sense of self and world, other? So there's that question. And there's the question, am I assuming it's real? Am I actually assuming a conventional truth is uh, an ultimate truth, is something real. This idea, this model, this notion is actually a reality. Am I assuming that? So two questions there. Okay, so we need to be careful with assumptions, but we also need to be careful with conclusions. So sometimes we have a notion and a model, and it does function in in the way that good science uh, functions, where a theory or a law equation in science works as a provisional truth. It works, as we said, um, because it has predictive power. Because that notion enables you to predict something happening, or occurring, or unfolding, if this or this is the case, that otherwise you wouldn't have been able to predict. So it has predictive power. So an example, you know, from the soul-making Logos, from the soul-making Dharma Logos, would be uh, the example that we can predict, we can expect, that unless we block the soul-making dynamic, unless we block the Eros, or block, or Psyche or Logos is blocked in some way, we can expect that uh, the natural process of the soul-making dynamic will begin to involve uh, not just the imaginal object, but also the self becoming imaginal, and then also the world becoming imaginal, some kind of cosmopoasis. Or if we start with the self and other and world or whatever, this um, spreading... To include self, other world, and in fact, and also Eros, as we've discussed many times. Self, other world Eros become imaginal. They become infused with imaginal, become infected, drawn in, involved, caught up in the whole soul making dynamic, and become imaginal. That's a prediction that we can make. So that we, ex- we, we expect that to, a, it bears out. In our practice we can notice it, in doing interviews you can notice it, you can expect it, you can look for it. And if it's not happening, it's pointing to something being blocked. And then the question is, okay, where is it blocked? So that would be an example of a conventional truth or a, conventional, uh, a notion that has only a conventional truth. And um, still having predictive power and therefore being you know, a useful provisional truth, a useful provisional tool useful notion or uh, the whole notion of the soul making dynamic itself that Eros uh, will um, ignite that whole dynamic so that psyche Eros in seeking more and the pothos in Eros in seeking more will open up more beyonds in psyche, more images, more dimensions more aspects so more will be perceived and that will inflame Eros even more. And the whole process opens up even more until it pushes on Logos. And I'm describing it in, in one order. There's many possible permutations of how, how it opens. But pushing on Logos. And then, and then the ideation changes. Either is stretched or shattered. And all that opens up the sense of the beloved other even more. And there's even more Eros. And so the Eros Psyche Logos dynamic will work like that. And all these, both of these predictions, that self, other, world, eros, uh, become imaginal, and that the eros psychologos uh, will uh, galvanize each other, deepen, widen, open, complexify each other. Both of those predictions come from the very uh, basic sort of provisional truth or notion or theory, soul, love, soul-making. Soul, love, soul-making. Just that simple kind of axiom uh, leads to these other level of notions. It's all provisional truth, could say. But there's predictive power in in provisional truth. Again, unless they're blocked. But in that case, it points to, uh aha, okay, where's the block? And you can find the block, perhaps unblock it, and then you see the process happening as predicted. So that's an example of of a provisional truth being uh, used to make valid, uh, helpful conclusions uh, through its predictive power. Um, But careful with this. Some while ago, uh, or in fact many times people, in my own experience as well, um, it's the case that two or more people uh, find that they've independently received or arrived at or opened to the same or very similar images. Either of, uh, you know, both have similar images of... of one per, in a diet, both have similar images of one person in the dyad, but they've arrived at them independently. So it can, it can happen in all kinds of ways. But it's not that they were one person shared an image with the other and uh, described it, and then the other person got a sense of the image. They arrived at them kind of separately, but the people themselves were uh, were you know connected in in some soul making relationship. <laughs> And then careful of what's, what does that imply? What does that imply? So it, here's a, an image that's shared, and one uh, of the perhaps tempting conclusions from the fact that two or more people spontaneously share the same or a similar image uh, could be that the image itself, its content, um, should be rarefied. Now because we've arrived at this independently, uh, it must mean there's something true about this image, true in the sense of, of real. It doesn't need to imply that it doesn't automatically imply that. So careful um, about conclusions as well. careful about assumptions but careful about conclusions as well. It may imply this fact that you know that two or more people independently share the same or a very similar image, may, may imply or it's more, uh, it's more um, likely that it implies or su- it suggests something like the fact that the chitta, the mind or the soul or consciousness, is not as bound by and not as bound to the individual physical organism as we typically assume in our modern culture. You understand? So there's two conclusions there, and to me the second is is the more uh, justifiable uh, conclusion, or conclu- conclu- you know, step towards a conclusion. It suggests that more than a reification of images. So the imaginal middle way um, doesn't apply to the latter conclusion, or the suggestion that... Um, Maybe minds are not really just bound up uh, and, and end with our skin, they're bound up with my neurons, my brain, bound to and by an individual physical organisms, we tend to assume so easily in our modern culture. So that may be suggesting that that's, uh, that may be a fact of conventional provisional truth, that it's being suggested there. The imaginable middle way doesn't apply because we're not talking about images. Then we're talking about the nature of the chitta and the capacities of the citta, the boundaries of the citta. The imaginable middle way um, should still apply to the image in, in soul making logos, anyway. So it applies still to the image, even though it's, they've both been uh, arrived at it independently, sharing the same image or a very similar image. But imagine middle way doesn't apply to um, questions about where is the boundary of the mind here? Is it just, as we tend to think, within the physical organism? So sometimes things like this happen, you know, many things happen, and we have to, uh, in soul-making practice, all kinds of things happen, and it's, it's extremely interesting. But uh, careful of our sort of logical process and, and what we tend to think something, uh, what the conclusions are, what's suggested by some experience that has happened. Especially something like that because um, this, you know, one of the things in our culture that, uh, one, one of the sort of ontological and epistemological assumptions in our culture uh, that's pretty entrenched uh, is that if a perception is socially agreed upon, in other words, if it's not just me perceiving something and you can't perceive it if we you and I excuse me and another person perceive it uh, perceive the same thing, then that social agreement of a perception uh, tends to validate the reality of that perception for us. That's one of our epistemologies, that we need to socially agree on something for it to be real. And anything that isn't socially agreed upon is not regarded as real. So that's one of our received criteria for what is real and what, what constitutes that knowledge of the real. Uh, it's received and usually unquestioned epistemology and ontology. So it can be tricky because we're sharing an image spontaneously tend to think, well, it must be real, because that's one of the criteria we tend to, to use for deciding what counts as real. So, just take this point a little further about assumptions and conclusions and conventional truths. You know, the question, what do they lead to? What, what, I'm, what am I assuming? What am I concluding? What conventional truths am I adopting or clinging to? And what does that lead to? So we've talked about something very different now and talk about the nature of time, for example. You read something uh, or explain something bri- briefly. So going back centuries and centuries, millennia, really, well, there were two views of, of time, Two persistent views of time we can trace through through the centuries in Western and I think also in Asian thought and Eastern thought. One of them is really that time is something real, it's essentially it's a substance, like like Newton's idea. The other though is time is essentially the product of the soul. It's something that the soul kind of creates. Let's say, or creates discovers. The second point of view, that time is a product of the soul, uh, was the view of Plotinus, who was uh, one of the, or perhaps the, the, who's regarded as the founder of Neoplatonism. He probably would have regarded himself just as a Platonist, but anyway. And he held that point of view, and his explanation for it is that the soul is unable to kind of grasp the the contents of intelligence I have to explain what that word intelligence means in this context. Intelligence means we could say the attributes of Buddha nature or the attributes of divinity or the attributes of the ultimate one the angelic essences you could say. The soul is unable to grasp the contents of that pleroma of intelligences, those attributes of divinity. In other words, here you have Buddha nature, you have God, or you have the ultimate one. And just as in Dharmakaya, we could say the attributes of the Dharmakaya, there's a kind of transcendent, beyond being and non-being kind of unity. And then there's another level where the attributes of the Dharmakaya, love and compassion and power and lots of other aspects, become kind of manifest or visible at a level of reality before they become physically manifest. So there's a way that this Dharmakaya, for example, is if we use Buddhist language, can be conceived as totally beyond any attributes, totally beyond even the attribute of being or non-being or one or nothing or many. Um, And then another level where it's uh, where one can focus on uh, the attributes of God the names of God um, uh, the attributes of the Dharmakaya so the soul is is not able to kind of grasp all that in um, in one kind of go in one indivisible act so instead it must kind of uh, do it one by one, or perhaps in, in, in groups, and uh, it must, it must um, come into contact with and behold and get to know and open to and get to love and uh, practice manifesting those aspects of the uh, divinity, of the Dharmakaya, let's say, several at a time. Can't do it all at once, maybe one by one, maybe several at a time, but in so doing... Um, it engenders time and produces the sensible world as a temporal world. So soul here really means world soul. So these are the kind of hierarchies of reality where soul, world soul, engenders time. Time is a product of the soul because of its, its need to kind of know and manifest those attributes of the transcendent divine but its inability to do so in one kind of gulp in one in one kind of gestalt so it does so bit by bit or aspect by aspect one by one or several at a time and in doing so it engenders time engenders and uh, uh, time and also the sensible temporal world that we live in world-soul, and our soul as part of, or as mimicking the world-soul. It's a very different an idea of time as absolute time as Newton would have it um, independently existing time. Now, in a very different way, the whole ways-of-looking approach and inquiry into emptiness... And I talked about before, and uh, I outlined seeing freeze and other places, the phenomenological approach to emptiness and dependent arising comes to similar kinds of conclusions that time is a dependent arising, dependent on the way of looking. Even time, even something so basic, so it's arrived at here we have a very metaphysical. Well, it sounds like a sort of arbitrary metaphysical theory. I doubt that it was. I think it was probably as much something that came out of philosophical thinking as much as it was something that came out of meditative exploration, I'm guessing, for Plotinus and others. Um, and in seeing the freeze and this phenomenological approach, ways of looking approach to emptiness and dependent arising, you have something that comes out of meditation and then realizes time is empty in time. The sense of time is a dependent arising. And then again, uh, we said in recent uh, years in quantum physics, there's also, as I mentioned earlier, this sense that perhaps time is not a fundamental reality, it's an emergent reality, and a quantum reality as such is dependent on the observer. So even within Neoplatonism, by the way, there were different points of view. Plotinus had that point of view, Iambricus had a different point of view, a more substantial view of time, apparently, Alexander Aphrodisius, who was actually a commentator on Aristotle, but he said, "Man, hum, humans are poetes of time—the uh, creators, the poetic creators of time. Time is part of our poesis, and we talk about cosmopoesis. We also said there's a poesis of time. So it's the subjectivity of time as its sort of primary ontological." Uh, reality, as opposed to the objective existence of time. But what I want to ask again is, if time uh, has no ultimately real existence, no inherent existence independent of the soul of the observer, what does that imply? What does it lead to and what does it imply for liberation? What kind of liberation does such an insight bring? What kind of an Uh, What scope does it mean for uh, what liberation means and involves? What also does it mean for soul-making? What does it mean for psychological healing? We tend so much to think of the past caused this difficulty in the present. Time moves that way, and it's an inexorable reality to time, and the placement of things, and the direction of causality, etc., So what does it mean then uh, for psychological healing? Again, this question, what we hold on to, what we adopt, what we grasp in terms of assumptions, conclusions and conventional provisional truths, what do they deliver, what do they open up for us and what do they limit for us? So what becomes just a whole kind of way of approaching psychological healing and, and doors that might open up depths and areas of psychological healing that may not be reachable, Possible, t- touchable through any other means, may be opened up. For instance, just from a different um, metaphysic of time, our whole notion of healing and how healing might be, or what it needs, or what's involved, but also our notion of human being. If if our notion of time is not of something ultimately real, independently existing. What does that mean for a human being? What does it mean about death? I'm hoping to come back to talk about uh, perspectives on death, different perspectives on death but we jump so easily into very simplistic notions all of them reified around death and impermanence and time and then also of human being a human being is someone who's born and then dies and that's it Or they live forever in heaven or hell or whatever it is. Too simple, too rarefied. I mean, you know, again, valid, conventionally, helpful, conventionally, perhaps, to a certain point, but provisional truths, maybe not the whole truth. Well, if you can see then, you can understand what gets blocked, what avenues, what openings, what experiences, perceptions, understandings transformations become impossible if we're entrenched in the conventional view of time. For example, I was talking about thinking of ways of looking, practicing ways of looking, teaching ways of looking, but actually harboring this idea of some fundamental basic sort of nebulous flow or flux to which we apply ways of looking and get this or that appearance of this or that object but that basic flux being real and therefore and time with it being real and what that then prevents us from opening to understanding, reaching, being touched by what vistas, what realms get prevented how significant this is but if time can also be opened up that way Conventional truths about time, um, different conventional truths about time can be adopted. What might that do? How might that open up for us areas and questions um, such as um, psychological healing and the nature of a human being and death, not to mention liberation and soul-making? These are important questions, important realizations. Okay, I think we'll stop there for today. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.